0: This is the Toasted Sister podcast. I'm Andy Murphy. Before the start of the new year, I took a rare family trip to Wisconsin, of all places. My parents, my sister, and I are fans of the Green Bay Packers, and as a gift to our parents, my sister and I planned a whole trip to see the Packers beat the Dallas Cowboys at Lambeau Field. It was one of the most exciting games I've ever been to. I actually lost my voice for a few days because of all the screaming and cheering I did. Anyways, I figured since I was in Green Bay, I might as well swing by and visit the United Nation, which is right by Green Bay. I met up with Becky Webster of Ngwakwa, Our Foods. It's a farm and a community learning, growing, and cooking space. At the time of this interview, Becky and her husband, Steve, were preparing to open a trading post. That trading post is now open. You can follow Nguakwa on Facebook and Instagram to see their progress. That's Ngwakwa, U-K-W-A-K-H-W-A. In this episode, I talk with Becky about the farm, Oneida history, bringing back trading, the tribe's food system, and all the awesome things that can happen when you just jump in and wing it.
1: So, in English, what I just said is, greetings, my friends. My name is Ganyata Gale, which means snow scattered here and there. My English name is Becky Webster. I'm Wolf Clan. I'm Oneida, and I grew up near Duck Creek that runs through the Oneida Reservation.
0: Right and uh that's um Oneida Reservation here in Wisconsin, uh but the tribe is not from here uh Give me a little bit of um history of the the tribe and how you know you guys came to live here in Oneida, Wisconsin.
1: yeah, so there's a number of factors that led to Oneida's being in Wisconsin. you know the Revolutionary War had decimated our populations, illegal treaties with the state of New York had left us almost landless the influence of alcohol, there were all kinds of reasons that uh, we were removed to what would later become the state of Wisconsin in the early 1800s. And we knew that we had to find a new homeland in order to be able to survive.
0: And is there still a Oneida tribe in uh, New York area? Yeah, there's
1: still the Oneida in New York and there's the Oneida of the Thames also. So we're three separate communities, but we are all Oneida. And I didn't find out until relatively recently that in the early 1800s when the Oneida were removed here, that the rest of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy was originally planning on coming with. But uh, for, through a series of events and misunderstandings and some fraud on behalf of the government, the other tribes in the Confederacy decided to not come with.
0: And so uh, during that time, how was the food used you know through all the violence um i know uh, u.s you know war tactics was to get rid of a lot of food burn a lot of crops how did it survive to where uh, your basement is full of uh seed here yeah so
1: our corn has remained by our side throughout all of time starting with creation like you mentioned during the war times our target was our food systems. And I think there's some words of Arthur C. Parker, who was a Seneca anthropologist in the early 1900s, he talked about his reflections on the wartime, and especially during the Revolutionary War, when it was just beyond catastrophic about what was happening in our communities and the amount of corn and beans and squash and orchards and homes that were destroyed, that he talked about how they would rather burn our fields and destroy our food than waste a bullet to kill us because they knew that if they took out our food that we would not survive
0: right right that's a very common story in uh, native history so tell me about the the farm here sorry i don't know how to pronounce it i think i know how to spell it now (laughs) yeah so
1: we purchased this land in 2017 and we had the hopes of creating a place where people can come to learn about our foods um, from growing them seed saving um, harvesting cooking making traditional tools and crafts related to our foods and we shared those aspirations with a faith keeper in our community, and he, in turn, gave us the name, Toslu. It means our foods, where we plant things. So it's more than about planting seeds in the ground. It's about planting these ideas, um, planting a, a way of life, just that philosophy about sharing with our community and regaining that knowledge that
0: had been taken away from us. So I know there's a little bit of snow flurries outside. Um there's a lot of uh, uh dried vines and stalks outside, but I I'm, I'm betting it looked very different during the summer. Uh tell me about some of the foods that uh were were growing out here during the the summertime.
1: Sure. So our focus here is on Hodneshone varieties of corn, beans, squash, sunflowers, sunchokes, tobacco lots of different varieties of berries, and we're even starting um, some spots where we're having some fruit trees.
0: So you give people tours here at the farm?
1: Yeah, we love to have visitors here to tour our farmstead, so we have community members that come, visitors from far away come, we have businesses that want to bring their employees here for tours, so we do a lot of that um, coming through and, and showing them what's been going on on the farmstead, and that's mostly during the summer hours or during the summertime because, of course, that's when things are growing and you can really get a good feel for what's happening here.
0: And you started a trading post. Well, at least uh, still getting together. Uh, there's a cabinet and a drawer, uh, beautiful, what is it called? A cabinet? Yeah. A
1: yeah, uh, cabinet.
0: cabinet desk area right there where there's going to be a whole line of uh, food there for trade. It's a trading post. Tell me a little bit about this uh, trading post and how, how it'll work. So our idea is that we want to
1: empower people and step out of this box of thinking that our value is determined by a dollar. So we want to be able to have, people have access to our traditional foods and um, we're going to be doing that through a trading and barter system. So we're going to have all of the things that we grow here on the farm set available, things that we wild forage, like uh, for teas and tinctures. We also have friends that are farmers and have um, animals. So we hope to have some of that available as well, like chickens and maybe some goats and cows and pigs. And so all of that kind of stuff would be available in the trading post. And we also want to have other things, too, like maybe some corn husk dolls, some corn husk flowers, some hides, You know, just different things that other people might come in to trade that we'll leave there in the trading post for somebody else to come by because maybe that's something that they're looking for. So we just want it to be accessible for people to have access to and to learn about all of these things that help us care for and celebrate our foods.
0: Your, your husband right mm-hmm. he, he was mentioning something about you know there's going to be this um, large um, population of people who are going to be needing uh, care as they grow older how would a community be changed if, uh, especially small native community like yours, like mine back on Navajo Nation, like a lot of other native communities, how do you think they could change if we all kind of had, you know, more of this system of trading and less of this like, you know, the almighty dollar is the end and start of everything?
1: Yeah, I think it it's going to be a really beautiful transformation. A lot of it happens now, but I think we want to encourage more of that to happen because when you talk with somebody and you want to work out a trade with them, Um, normally in the you know the cash system it's how much does this cost oh it's ten dollars will you take eight okay fine like that's the transaction but here it's like well I have you know five pounds of hulled corn flour what in in, you want to trade me some venison so that we can have a conversation about that like hey I went out and this actually isn't from here I was on this reservation and and I got this and you know to, to understand what work goes into these things and to try to to come up with a fair exchange because so many people are so nervous about that. Like, I don't know, what, what is a jar of jelly worth? I don't know. You know, this is my grandma's recipe and she taught me how to make it and I'm making it the way that she, you know. So there's all of these stories that get shared too in addition to the transaction itself. And I think that's one of the things that when we have conversations with each other and learn more about each other, that people begin to feel more like family.
0: Yeah, I think something that does come with a story um, even tastes a little bit better. Uh, th- there have been a couple of times where I've brought something back to my family and I'm like, okay, I got to tell you this whole story. And then, you know, telling them where it came from, how that person grew it, what, um, you know, they went through to, to put it in this bag for me to purchase, you know, and we're all just like, oh. You know that's so cool and we all dig into it and we're like hmm like really really taking care to like taste everything and experience everything from from eating that food I think I think that's like the the awesome part of of food is that of course stories attached to it and then uh native stories
1: attached to it that food just hits different when it's made with love from a community member that has willingly shared it with you and shared that story Right,
0: right. Um, You have a a law degree and you're a teacher, you do virtual teaching here in this office here. There's all that, all those beans you're separating down there and all of this work and uh, you were just describing out here in the farm. How do you kind of balance your time with all of this? And I see there's like stuff here for, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I'm telling everybody about what's in this office. <laughs> there's there's, here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's like things that are, that are half done. There's uh, corn uh, husk dolls and materials for those dolls mm-hmm. here. Like, you know, what, how, how do you um, uh, manage uh, your time, I guess? Well, I think it's that even
1: though it, it it's, it's, is a lot of work, it doesn't feel like work because everything I do, I love. It just feels like I'm on one endless weekend where I get to have these amazing adventures mm-hmm. and I I really love my job. And the things that I do here on the farmstead directly complement what it is I'm doing at work. Sure, my work is focused and I was originally hired because of my work with tribal state intergovernmental relationships. I know that sounds super exciting, but my work has uh, does continue to do that, but it also has been moving in the direction of the food sovereignty movement and how important that is for our communities and our tribal governments and individual tribal families, co-ops of families to really understand what that means and to embrace it because our future literally depends on that. And it's about gathering all of that information that had been lost, finding ways to share that with people, understanding that there are some information we don't wanna make public and and some information that we do want to make freely available. So it's a balancing act, it's a lot of work. A lot of times it's exhausting, but it's, it's, it's fun and we're having a really good time doing it.
0: A lot of my listeners are not native. Um, a lot of my listeners are folks who are just interested in food. And this is probably one of five food podcasts that they... It might be the first time uh, folks are thinking about like tribal government uh, state uh, um, relationships like what's that all about can you just explain um, very simply and as short as you can because I know that's like a whole semester of learning here but <laughs> can you explain how um, these uh, why the, the relationships are
1: the way they are yeah, so the United Tribe in particular, we had a reservation here before Wisconsin became a state. Then Wisconsin was formed and we had you know counties and towns and local governments now located on the reservation. Some of us might be familiar with the Dawes General Allotment Act or other allotment acts that broke up tribal land holdings, gave land that was previously owned by the tribal government to individual tribal members, which then fell out of tribal ownership. So on reservations throughout the country, You're going to have, you know, state and local governments located there, and you're going to have non-members that are located in that shared space. So that leads to either cooperation or litigation. So the obviously from in my perspective, the best situation is to find ways to cooperate and work together because you have so much more to gain by pooling your resources and your talent and your reach, if you work together, versus if you're going to be fighting in lawsuits, um, because a lot of that is fighting over who gets to say what happens in this shared space. It's usually the local government trying to tell the tribe that the tribe needs to follow local government laws.
0: You know, on uh, the Oneida tribe has their food system. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, so
1: Oneida is actually a model throughout Indian country about our food sovereignty. So I think starting in the late '70s is when um, some folks got together to form what was called Iroquois Farms at the time, which later trans transferred over into um, Junhinqua, which means life sustenance. So that's really where it starts, and that's a heirloom. Um, organic farm that grows our Tuscarora white corn and they grow acres of it and they invite the community to come at, at harvest time and help harvest. Um, after the harvest is done, they have their corn drying for several months. Then they send it over to the Oneida Cannery, and that's another tribal department that then processes the corn. So they would, you know, make the uh, dehydrated corn so that people can have an easier time making corn soup. They'll make the different types of flours. Sometimes they'll make corn bread that you can buy. And we used to have an Oneida market. Now we just um, have them in our Oneida one stops, our retail. Uh, gas stations, so they take those products and then they'll sell them in the stores and make them available for the community. That's the main system that operates. We also have the OSIFs, the Oneida Community Integrated Food Systems, which involves like the the farmers market, the food pantry, all that the different things and a lot of those products move and flow throughout that system. But it's really uh, incredible that the tribe has invested so much into wanting our community to eat healthier and to have more access to that traditional food. Actually several years ago, they did such an amazing job at getting people to want to eat our foods that they would regularly have shortages. Mm -hmm. So you'd go to the Oneida Market and on the shelves they would say, I'm sorry, we don't have any white corn and people in the community were just so upset. Why isn't Junhenqua growing enough corn? Why isn't the cannery processing more corn? We want our corn, where's our corn? And a group of us got together and said, hold on, wait a minute, this isn't the government's job to feed us. We have responsibility as community members. So in 2016, we formed a, a co-op and we called ourselves Ohelagu, which means among the corn stalks. And as those families who really have no idea what we're doing, we got together and grew a few acres of corn and we're still um, uh, every year we've been doing better and learning more and growing corn and, in turn, sharing that corn out with the community. So in addition to what the tribal government is doing, our co-op is helping to get more access to that corn for our community. Nice. ohilagu
0: Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, <right>. Yoyane. <laughs> All right, so so uh, personally, if I were to go into town, where where could I go to get um, a little sample of something that I could fit in my in my suitcase? <laughs> yeah, so you would go to the Oneida One Stop
1: on Packerland for sure. Is the one that it's actually on Packerland and Larson at that intersection, and it's called the Larson One Stop because we have another One Stop on the Packerland, but. At that one gas station is where they, the Oneida Market used to be. So now a lot of those products are actually just moved over into the gas station area.
0: Are the Cornhusk Dolls a traditional art form? Yes, the Cornhusk Dolls
1: are a traditional art form, and they're used to talk about a story about how we are all community members and we all have roles and responsibilities. Um, it has to do with a woman who is in charge of watching over children, and um, she failed in those responsibilities. And ultimately as punishment, um, the creator made her into a corn husk doll because in failing to fulfill those responsibilities, she stared into a pond um, staring at her reflection because she was so beautiful. And in doing so, um, some children were harmed in that process. Mm -hmm. So there's a longer version of that story, a more complete version on our YouTube channel. Um, where I share the story as it was told to me by the late Brian Dockstater. I, I really like them.
0: <laughs> I really like them. I was just telling you I, I made a, a very, you know, quick 10-minute version of, of one. But, wow, these are really cool. What, what do you use to uh, dye them? There's a blue one and a red one there.
1: Right now we're just using RIT dye. But I do want to try to figure out how to use more of our natural dyes. Um, it, and we've been especially since we're doing things like we're cooking beets and we're um, doing different cooking methods. As we're cooking things, I'm seeing the colorful water that comes out of things. I'm like, oh, I wonder what that would look like if I stuck some corn husks in here to see what that would be like. So, yeah. um, long-term goal, we want to try to find out different ways, but for now RIT dye is working.
0: <laughs> okay. All right, And you, you just mentioned a couple of things that um, you've done for the first time or, um, you know, you have this type of bean or uh, this type of uh, corn and now you got to try to learn how to do something else. Do you ever have like any fear over something like that? Or are you the kind of person who's just like, all right, we're going to watch some YouTube videos. We're going to ask a friend. We're, we're just going to do it.
1: Yeah, definitely. Our goal is we're just going to wing it. We have no idea what we're doing most of the time, but we are having a lot of fun figuring it out. Um, we didn't plant our first indigenous seeds until 2015, so we're still really new at this, and we are so excited about it, and we are just really enjoying that process of of having the seeds teach us, having uh, community members that know of these ways to teach us, reaching out to friends all over the United States and even even into, you know, Mexico and South America to to just teach how they're caring for their foods, so that we can turn around, gather that information and make it accessible for other people.
0: Right, right. Just a really big uh, uh, need of community out there to learn from I mean I you mentioned some people I'm familiar with I mentioned some people uh you're familiar with so you know it, it's um you know, it's really inspiring knowing that there are uh folks like you who are you know just learning things for the first time, and then, um, you know, you're gonna wing it in the future and see see how it goes. But um, it's it's very cool that you seem very very comfortable, you know, just going out there and trying something like that. I think there are a lot of people, you know, folks like myself who are just like, oh my god, I. <laughs> I don't think I can, or, you know, I I think it's, like, too hard, or, you know, how am I going to find time to do this and that, when I have all this other kind of, all these other kinds of responsibilities to do, but, um, yeah, I think eventually, there, there, I think there are a lot of us, you know, who, who really want to, you know, just dive in to our traditional foods, you know, like myself. I've tried to, you know garden a while ago and just watching them all shrivel up it just like broke my heart and I'm like I don't think I can do it again but what would your advice be to for me and then other people who you know have that you know kind of passion to just want to go in there and do it
1: well there we have to recognize that there's a lot of embarrassment and shame for not knowing this stuff and it's not our fault. It's not our fault that that information was taken from our grandparents and our great grandparents. That was planned assimilation. It, it worked in so many ways. And so we have a lot of work to do to regain that information. And it's okay to not know. I think that's the most important thing to understand is that you know, just because you didn't grow up knowing this stuff, it doesn't, doesn't mean that you can't learn it as an adult. What we're doing is we're teaching our daughters all of this stuff. So for them, this is becoming natural. And that's what we want to have eventually in our community is we don't necessarily wanna be unique. We want other people to have these same things. We want other people to have a kitchen gathering space uh, where people come and learn about this stuff. So it's okay to not know these things yet. And it's okay to not have these things been taught to you your whole life. My husband and I both grew up in this community, and we did not have access to this information. So the information that we are gathering
0: is we're doing all that we can to be able to help other people learn. You sometimes give talks or, of course, you do lots of workshops here and um, you've been quoted in a lot of media about food sovereignty. You know, so it it seems like uh, there's a lot more attention being paid to food sovereignty and uh, native food because we're seeing a lot more coverage in food magazines, uh, coverage of um, food issues and stuff like that. How do you think that is maybe having an effect on this movement here? Do you think it's adding to the to the energy, or I mean, are you concerned about um, you know a lot of media coverage? All you know? No, I'm I'm not concerned about it. I think that all of this is drawing
1: attention to these issues and why this is so new for so many of us again it comes back to that this information was taken from us so now we are relearning it and i think the more that we get the media coverage the more of our own people that this is going to reach and maybe some of this is going to bring us back home because i think food is a very safe way for a lot of people to come back home to get back in touch with their culture, their language, their stories, all of that. I think food is an amazing way to do that. And as long as we can continue to have indigenous people tell these stories and to have our own voices heard, I think that's one of the key things there because there are so many of us that are doing this work that those voices should be highlighted and shared with other people. horrible situation where there was a non-Indigenous person that was very extractive about trying to get information from me and some other people working in the, the food sovereignty initiatives and ended up repeatedly asking for more information, for more information. So it wasn't just, you know, he was interviewing us for this information. He was extracting and expecting us to teach him because he had a big learning curve to, to overcome then he ended up putting his piece out there and kind of mentioning us a few times in there and made it him, held himself out as an expert, Mm -hmm. which is really damaging because there are enough of us that are already in existence that we don't need to have these folks come and try to move that spotlight away from the indigenous people and onto themselves.
0: Yeah, on top of just sharing that, a little piece of that um, horror story there, uh, what would your message be to non-Native writers, food writers, maybe even food reviewers about um, coming into Native communities like this and Native restaurants?
1: Yeah, we have a lot of non-Indigenous folks that come here and share, share out what they've experienced here on the farmstead. I think it's important to be genuine, um, to not be extractive, and to really be true to the story um, that you're sharing and those experiences that you're sharing. Um, again, don't hold yourself out as the expert, but recognize that you've have uh, experienced something with an Indigenous community and you want to share that. That is completely fine, and um, I think that's something that we want to help celebrate. Also, if you're going to be, you know, in academia or um, something about doing something on a larger scale, maybe invite an indigenous author to co-author with you to add that perspective and to make sure that our voices are still being heard.
0: That was Becky Webster from the Oneida Nation of Wisconsin. Her book, In Defense of Sovereignty, Protecting the Oneida Nation's Inherent Right to Self-Determination, comes out on February 14th. It focuses on a 20-year power struggle between the tribe and the neighboring town of Hobart, which Becky witnessed as a young lawyer for the tribe. Links to Oguacua are in the show notes and toastedsisterpodcast.com. I'm taking a trip to Los Angeles this month to see what the indigenous food there is all about. Follow me on social media at Toasted Sister Podcast and at Andy Murphy13 on Instagram. If you want to support the work I do here, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. And speaking of patrons, thank you to new patrons, Samantha and James briding you can also support this podcast with a purchase from the shop at ToastedSisterPodcast.com and please share these episodes with your friends and networks. Editing help by Soul Traverso. Music by C.W. Ion. I'm Andy Murphy, creator, host, and producer of the Toasted Sister Podcast. Have a good night.